Lopate at large, I'm Ludit Lopate. In recent months, school libraries across the country have been the focus of conservative-driven book bans. And in addition, other school administrators, uh, afraid of attracting controversy, are quietly removing books from library shelves before they can be challenged. In her latest book, Read Dangerously, The Subversive Power of Literature in Troubled Times, Azar Nafisi, the best-selling author of Reading About Lolita in Tehran and other books about the power of literature, writes about the, the power of literature in times of social and political upheaval and how reading can be a subversive act and also a tonic for political environment, for a political environment with, as she writes, too much ideology and not enough discourse. Her book is published by Day Street Books, and I'm very pleased that it brings Azar Nafizi to our show now. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me at your show. Oh, of course. <laughs> this is important stuff. Uh, why did you structure the book as, as letters to your late father? Well, I went through a process until I got there. Um, I had been going a little bit crazy about the way the direction things were taking in this country. Um, that has been going on and brewing for many years. I mean, my uh, book, Republic of Imagination, um, addresses uh, the issues that I was concerned with. And so, um, like um, Saul Bellows Herzog, I started just writing letters to people. And uh, I wrote to my father, of course, but I also wrote to Donald Trump. I was just writing letters and thinking that uh, maybe I could turn them into a book, but they wouldn't be turned into a book because they were too random. So then I, uh, and I wanted, didn't want to write straight essays. I wanted to, uh, to choose a form that was intimate enough uh, so that I could pour out my heart, but at the same time, I could keep the distance that is needed when one writes, uh, not, not become too emotional. So to make a long story short, then I started writing to the writers whose books I had chosen. Uh, and um, that didn't work either because I didn't know them. So I couldn't um, talk to them the way I later talked to my father. And I was telling a friend about this and she said, why don't you write uh, to a third person? Mm. And that led me to my father, because since I was four, when I couldn't read or write, he had been writing me letters. Uh, he addressed the letter to me at the age of four in his diary, talking about how his dreams and the future and how he feels about me. Uh, when I was six, he went to United States for uh, continuing his studies and uh, we wrote letters. And until the day he died, uh, we um, had these exchanges. Uh, so uh, I felt that all his life, he told me what he felt through stories. Now it's my turn to tell him through stories. Wasn't he the mayor of Tehran before I became a political prisoner for four years? Yes, uh, he was the youngest mayor of Tehran and very popular, in fact. But he was a terrible politician, you know. Uh, he, uh, uh, his friends called him too obstinate. Uh, he wouldn't um, uh, sort of uh, give in uh, to his betters. It and sounds to he, me like to some degree you inherited that. Well, yeah, he's 
jail changed my whole life. It turned me into an sort of an anti-establishmentarian type of a person. Uh, but uh, he uh, uh, stood up to two most two of the most powerful men in the country, the prime minister and minister for uh, of interior. And so they made some trumped up charges and put him in jail and told him if he says he's sorry and writes a letter of apology, he can come out. And he said he'd rather stay in jail and have his day in court. So it took them four years before they brought him to trial. And he did his own defense. And he began with a poem from our uh, epic poet Ferdowsi, and his whole defense is dispersed with quotations from um, writers and poets, uh, not just from Iran, but from all over the world. And he was exonerated of all charges, but in subordination. We were so proud of that, that he was um, uh, insubordinate. But that charge was later dropped as well. But weren't you forced to leave Iran in the mid-1990s and come to the United States because you refused to wear a veil and, and you were pushing the boundaries of what could be taught in your classes? That sounds a bit obstinate. <laughs> No, I um, uh, the the issue of the wearing the veil was uh, around the beginning of the revolution when um, they uh, were forcing women to wear the veil and women would refuse to wear it. Uh, they would come into the streets of uh, whatever way they liked. So they turned it into a law and they started with workplaces. They said that anyone working um, uh, in public, they have to wear a veil, otherwise they will be expelled. And I and two of my friends refused to wear it. Uh, I told them in a meeting uh, that, um, uh, I mean, I'm ashamed that I would um, go to the class without the veil and then the next day come with the veil so that I get my salary. I, I, that, that was shameful. How would my students respect me, you know? Uh, so um, that was it. But I resigned. What you're saying um, about the university is true in the fact that I went back to teaching eight years after I was expelled and I was being constantly harassed over the way I looked um, uh, and the way I treated the students, the books I taught. So finally, I resigned and they didn't accept my resignation for two years, mm. but I didn't. And I stopped going to school. To university until they finally expelled me. Now, in your first chapter of the book, you discuss writers as diverse as Plato, Ray Bradbury, and Salman Rushdie. And then in later sections, you discuss Toni Morrison, Margaret Atwood, Elliot Ackerman, Daniel Grossman, and James Baldwin. Uh, that's a wide range. Why those in particular? Well, First of all, I had a lot of fun reading and rereading books under the guise that I'm writing and I need to find out. So I read loads of books uh, before I chose uh, these um, uh, particular writers. Well, you didn't uh, mention Lolita in this book. <laughs> that was another book. <laughs> no, <laughs> I thought I had mentioned Lolita enough. Uh, uh, and actually, one of the 
reasons for writing this book is a question. Uh, it's a uh, sort of a quotation from uh, Saul Bellow. I bring at the end of Lolita where he says, those who survived the ordeal of Holocaust, how will they survive the ordeal of freedom? And uh, I thought that this question is very pertinent today that um, we take freedom, we have forgotten to take freedom as an ordeal, and uh, we want to be comfortable. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, uh, literature and arts, uh, as Baldwin says, um, uh, are there to disturb the peace, not to make you feel woolly and comfortable. So when totalitarian regimes come to power, they erase or rewrite history to suit their needs. And they also view the media as the enemy. They ban books. Um, and I was wondering, in what ways are writing and reading acts of subversion? How can literature affect politics? Um, we're not talking about nonfiction here. We're talking about yeah. fiction. Literature as a whole. Uh, you know... It is amazing until I had not lived, uh, until I had lived in a country um, under the rule of a totalitarian theocracy, I did not know how much power um, literature and arts had uh, over us as human beings. Um, when the world, the world at, at the time uh, of the revolution, the world was taken away from us, uh, physically and otherwise. And so the, the need to connect to the world uh, was so much that we um, uh, created an underground life. Uh, Iranians created an underground life where all the things they couldn't do in public, they would do in the privacy of their homes, uh, like watching forbidden films and videos. Um, uh, later on, um, watching forbidden satellites, which kept being discovered and our own home was raided uh, because of the satellite we had. And read forbidden books. Uh, one person would have the book and others would Xerox it and, and, and read it. Um, uh, were you reading them you? in English or were you reading them? In English. They, they, uh, I mean, how the, many have the been books, translated? The books that were um, uh, written in English, we read in English. Mm -hmm. uh, there were some who would read the translations uh, but um, in my classes, uh, my, I, I was teaching English and American Lit. Uh, so um, I was reading, uh, we were reading them in English. You write that in a democratic country, we must engage the enemy. How does fiction, as opposed to nonfiction, help us to do that? Well, fiction, by nature, I mean, its structure is democratic. Um, you notice that the fiction is all about these different characters and a great writer, not any writer, but a great writer has to go under the skin of each of these characters and create them and cr as individuals with a voice of their own, even the villain in a novel gets to, um, uh, gets to speak uh, his own points of view. And uh, um, only a bad writer uh, imposes a message or imposes his or her 
own viewpoints and ideologies upon the work of fiction. Um, he's, she's like a dictator uh, imposing one voice upon uh, the multivocality of voices. Uh, so I think that fiction, uh, just re reading fiction doesn't uh, make us, uh, uh, doesn't make policies, but it helps create the mindset that makes the policies, the mindsets that has to go to vote. Uh, so uh, it helps shape our mindset in a different way, in a way that is different and opposed to the totalitarian absolutist mindset. Mindset. Ray Bradbury said, I'm quoting, you don't have to burn books to destroy a culture, just get people to stop reading them. But, uh, yes. but, but aren't people reading fewer books these days as they turn more to other sources uh, in social media and popular entertainment? Do you worry that in America, as in Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451, the public will just simply stop reading and caring? Yes, Yes, I do. And, you know, there are two ways to censor and ban. Uh, one is to censor and ban. <laughs> the other um, is um, to be indifferent, to just not read, as Bradbury says. And um, we live, uh, things are changing because of the war in Ukraine and the conflicts within um, the, this country itself. But... Um, uh, it, uh, it is really da dangerous because we are after comfort. And you notice that ideology and the totalitarian mindset brings us comfort because uh, we belong to a group of people and we're all self-righteously right. Everything we say is correct. And we don't need to engage with others. We don't need to have a discourse or a dialogue. And that goes against the grain of literature and arts because literature and arts are about connecting to others. And literature in and of itself is about the other. It is about people we don't know, places mm -hmm. we have not been to. It and is we, and we, we live through their experience while we're yes. reading the book. Yes, and that taking that away from us and social media um, is taking not only uh, the realm of imagination away from us, but the realm of reality. As uh, the saying goes, first they burn books, then they kill people. Uh, you know, books are indicators of how democratic society is. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate. Uh, at large here on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org, is Azar Nafizi, whose latest book, I, this is your fifth or sixth, I think, um, called Read Dangerously, The Subversive Power of Literature in Troubled Times, is published by Day Street Books. Um, <laughs> so you, um, you've been writing like lots of books. Um, when did you begin to worry that America was under the threat of uh, totalitarianism or authoritarianism? Well, uh, with my first 
The first two books I published, uh, well, um, actually, the second book was my memoir that that I did not pay attention to America. But uh, uh, in both Reading Lolita, at the end of Reading Lolita, and and the Republic of Imagination, I talk about America. At the end of Reading Lolita, uh, I uh, bring the quotation from Bellow again, uh, where he said that uh, in Stalin's Russia, death is naked. We all know that they they um, uh, have extreme violence. They impose extreme violence on their citizens. But in the democracies in the West, what is dangerous, what threatens us is our sleeping consciousness and our atrophy of feeling. And so uh, I was worried for me, quite a few years since I returned to the United States. But the totalitarian trends came to my attention uh, around the 2016 uh, elections. And when uh, Mr. Trump was, uh, well, I can't say president, but he was the president. Hmm. Uh, That started to seriously concern me. And this book um, comes out of that concern. Well, in what way did Donald Trump's presidency and the cult of personality that surrounded him feel similar to your experience of living in Iran? Well, you know, totalitarian trends are the same no matter where uh, they are. Um, It is this, um, uh, first of all, well, there is the attack on those that are different from us, uh, 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 women, minorities, and culture. And uh, second, the first thing an absolutist mindset does is to um, silence all voices, and confiscate uh, history and culture. Because, uh, you know, literature and arts and and history itself, they are all uh, for revealing the truth. And truth is very dangerous because once we reveal it, um, we cannot remain silent. And if we do remain silent, we're implicit, complicit uh, in the crimes that are being committed. Uh, So, and you notice that Mr. Trump was, um, was and is so dependent upon lies. I mean, his first attack was on journalists calling them the enemy of the people because they revealed the truth. And that has been going on. I mean, his voice, the only voice, um, supporters blindly and ignorantly following him. Baldwin used to say, um, ignorance allied with power is the most pernicious enemy of justice. And this is what we saw in the uh, Trump era, uh, ignorance allied with power. And this is what I experienced in the Islamic Republic. Didn't you begin thinking about writing this book as a way to deal with your anger and frustration at the two countries that you've called home? Yes. What feelings were you experiencing in October of 2016? I felt uh, almost despair. Uh, because um, in Iran, the violence against the citizens who were more and more and who are more and more protesting uh, 
both in the streets and at work and uh, anywhere they find. And uh, there was extreme violence used against them. And I felt completely helpless in doing anything about it. And over here, um, there was this divide because of this polarization on the left and the right. And um, it was becoming uh, almost impossible to find a space uh, where you can connect, where you can talk. And so uh, 2016 uh, was um, the beginning of uh, my anxieties and I really did have uh, close to anxiety attacks. You bookended this work between two major events. What what are they and why those two in particular? Well, In 2019, uh, there were huge demonstrations in Iran, which began over the price of uh, uh, petroleum, but ended up in asking for the regime to be changed. Uh, And the regime attacked those uh, protests uh, in the most brutal way possible. Uh, Even from um, helicopters, they were shooting uh, into people. According to AP, um, 1,500 people were killed, uh, including some very young people, like a 13-year-old boy. And so um, that was the situation in Iran. And uh, over here, uh, well, and that was the beginning of uh, uh, my seriously writing this book. Uh, And uh, I ended it with George Floyd uh, demonstrations because they were both... um, hopeful, bringing hope, and they showed that uh, civil rights movement uh, has achieved a great deal uh, for us to be able to uh, protest and uh, whites and uh, blacks and the people from all races and from all ages and uh, and beliefs gathering together. Uh, but it also led to anxiety. How will we deal? Because it is the jury is still out. I mean, we don't know how we will um, deal with this crisis. If we deal with this crisis in a democratic manner, if we refuse to become like our enemy, that is what I'm scared of, that we become like our enemy. They're absolutists, we become absolutists. But how do the women of Afghanistan, who just recently have uh, been denied all sorts of rights again, girls aren't being allowed to go to school anymore, how do they even fight against that? Oh, God, I know my heart breaks every time I think about Afghanistan. And um, it looked like things were going to change, but then they're back to where the Taliban were years ago. Yes. And uh, I bet you, well, you notice that they are still protesting. And uh, they most probably will do what um, happens every time under a brutal regime, uh, that they will go underground. I bet you they won't stop reading. Hmm. I bet you that, anything. You lived in Iran in uh, early 1989 at the time of the fatwa that the Ayatollah Khomeini issued against Salman Rushdie. In what ways is the satanic verses still relevant? 
Well, you know, you know that Salman Rushdie was very popular in Iran before the satanic verses and uh, with his midnight children and shame got um, uh, the government's uh, award for translation. Um, Salman Rushdie, the move, the move against Salman Rushdie was a political move. Uh, that book is not about uh, Islam or denigration of the religion. Um, it is, as Salman Rushdie himself has said, a critique of the West, in fact, and of the fragmentation and of immigration and all the problems that they bring with them. Uh, and... Uh, we in Iran uh, were used to being accused as writers, as, uh, uh, as infidels. So for us, it was nothing new. And in Iran, um, writers and poets were not only banned and jailed and, and tortured, but killed. Hmm. Uh, so uh, for me, this killing of the writers comes not from a position of power, but from a position of weakness. How much power would do these men and women with their pens have? They only have their words, that's their power. And yet the words are so strong that they make the most powerful men in the world not be able to tolerate them, be afraid of them. You write about Margaret Atwood, focusing on her book, The Handmaid's Tale, which is often on the list of books to be banned in certain school libraries. Can you talk about that a bit? Uh, it, it takes place in a future America where climate change, droughts, a decaying economy, and failing birth rates lead to the rise of a theocracy in which women, are called hand, women called handmaids are conscripted into childbirth. Yeah, that that is a very frightening um, uh, vista that Atwood creates for us. Uh, and I bet you uh, she was influenced uh, by the Islamic Republic. She doesn't say it directly, but at the end of Handmaid's Tale, um, uh, there's this paper, she says, that uh, it, in the future, uh, this professor uh, writes a paper about the two monotheocracies, the Republic of Gilead, which is in Atwood's work, and the Islamic Republic of Iran. Uh, so that aspect of it is very interesting. Uh, Atwood creates the, uh, the atmosphere of absolutism, the way it creeps up on you, the way uh, it takes over uh, and not just uh, physically um, they uh, limit you, but it takes over your mind and heart. Um, she one of the most important things she shows is how unaware people are before a, a, an autocracy or a totalitarian uh, system takes over. It is because we give up. Mm on small uh, on uh, small details thinking them to be small details we give up on uh, some of our freedoms or we don't pay attention when those freedoms are taken away from others and that way totalitarianism creeps in 
And then uh, before you know it, it takes over. I felt that it was interesting that Atwood um, placed her re- dystopian republic in the United States. Uh, her message most probably is that it can happen anywhere. But, we need to be vigilant about freedom. But she was obviously prescient because we are now seeing climate change, droughts, decaying economy, yes, fail, yes. falling birth rates. <laughs> You're very right. You're very right. That is the power of great fiction, that it can um, uh, zoom into the future. Uh, bring out, Because she brings out the possibilities that exist within the present. So do you see and, parallels between the Republic of Gilead in her book and Donald Trump's America? It, it, Donald Trump's America is the pre-Gilidian uh, uh, stage. He has not yet um, created that America, but that is what he wants. Uh, by the way he acts, notice how he dismisses and eliminates um, even those who had been loyal to him because they displeased him. Uh, and uh, uh, he relies so much on people's ignorance and our lies. And um, he made it in Gilead. Uh, one worry is that these atrocities that are being committed, they become too ordinary once they are repeated all the time. Well, Donald Trump's uh, um, behavior at the beginning was shocking, but then it became ordinary. And uh, people are used to it by now. And that is very dangerous. Well, we uh, overlook the things that we want to overlook and then focus on the things that we want to focus. For example, uh, all of Donald Trump's uh, sexual uh, misbehavior was kind of overlooked by uh, his supporters, and yet they're going after this Supreme Court nominee for being too easy on things like pornography. Yes, and uh, one of their own, uh, is it Gatz, uh, their own um, um, Republican congressman uh, is uh, at least allegedly accused of um, uh, having uh, sex with a 17-year-old. Yes, Gates. And uh, uh, they're not too bothered about it. I mean, you would think that Republicans would be the first to say, let's investigate. Um, this is a shame uh, <laughs> that, uh, uh, and if he's innocent, uh, well, let us um, then uh, know that he's innocent, uh, not that he, we should have him guilty, uh, but uh, that we should investigate. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I hope you're 
enjoying my conversation with Azar Nafisi. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of her book, Read Dangerously, The Subversive Power of Literature in Troubled Times. You can do that by going online to give to WBAI.org. That's give and then the number two, WBAI.org, or by calling 212-209-2950 during today's show. And, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopez at Large, and we thank you very much. And return to our guest today, who is Azar Nafizi. Her latest book, Read Dangerously, The Subversive Power of Literature in Troubled Times, is published by Day Street Books. That's D-E-Y Street Books. Um, you devote one of the book's letters to your, to your father, to the writers Toni Morrison and Zora Neale Hurston. What are the revolutionary aspects of their works? Well, um, they both uh, write uh, about uh, race and um, uh, I guess what you call gender, I don't know. Um, uh, but um, it is the perspective from which they uh, approach it. With Toni Morrison, uh, she goes into the mind of uh, this young girl who is um, African-American and uh, she has been so uh, much defined uh, by racism that she feels it, the only way she can have salvation is to have blue eyes. Uh, that is what she dedicates her life to. So she literally, in order to survive, she literally wants to become her enemy. Uh, and uh, she wants to become white. And uh, Zora Neale Hurston, who is one of the most um, uh, independent souls I have come across, uh, uh, she creates um, uh, uh, protagonists in her eyes are watching God that, uh, that is exact opposite of Toni Morrison's. They both show two different attitudes uh, towards racism. Her character rebels against the slave mentality of her grandmother. Her grandmother used to be a slave and she sees white people and their influence everywhere and she's scared of them and she plans her life based on them. And uh, Janie wants to live um, and go to the horizon as she sees. She, like Zora Neale Hurston, dreams of the horizon. And uh, she wants to be independent. And uh, she tells her story. Uh, her story um, uh, she's independent, not just um, in relationship to the white race, but to her own race. Um, she has two bad marriages, and then she finds a man that is about 12 years older, younger than she is, and um, he has no money, and uh, she lives with him and later marries him. Uh, so she is her own woman, and uh, that for that uh, I very much... Um, uh, and, and why do you think enjoyed. these books are people are calling for these books to be banned? Yeah. 
yeah, people uh, are uh, worried about anything that disturbs them, anything that is out of the ordinary. And uh, that is why um, uh, they cannot read great books because uh, uh, books are based in reality. They are based in reality and they, they are supposed to make you feel um, with the character uh, so that you through that experience, you become more experienced. You have this knowledge which you didn't have before you read the book. Should I assume that James Baldwin, Baldwin is your favorite? Yes, Baldwin is amazing because he, uh, on one hand, he was dedicated to the civil rights movement and he uh, uh, participated uh, in that movement uh, uh, actively and wrote about it. On the other hand, as a writer, he saw himself as a witness and he wanted to be independent minded. Also, uh, he was gay, which he was gay and made him another um, minority. Yes, yes, and uh, there is this. Um, Can't say gay um, in Florida. <laughs> there is this um, uh, interview with him where uh, the interviewer says, uh, "When you found out you were um, um, black and poor and gay, um, you you felt most probably that you have hit the rock bottom." And he said, no, I felt that I have um, uh, hit the jackpot <laughs> uh, because <laughs> it couldn't get any worse than that. But, you know, his first novel was a beautiful novel written um, about uh, a young African-American boy. It is a story of his maturation, a very American story in many ways and very Baldwinian. And uh, he found himself a firm space within the African-American writing. But what does he do with his second book? He writes about a white gay man living in Paris. Mm -hmm. And his um, publisher tells him, uh, this is ridiculous. You are known uh, as a, a good um, African-American writer. This will destroy your career. And her, uh, his uh, agent told him to burn the book. He said, I told them uh, you and went to screw you and I went to uh, publish it in England. Uh, so as a writer, he saw writing and reading as a universal act. Well, he did set it in France. Um, yeah. You begin that particular letter about Baldwin by introducing him to your father. Was your father unfamiliar with him or his work? Uh, my father, uh, yes, he was, unfortunately. Uh, and um, uh, I uh, should have talked about Baldwin uh, mm. to him, but I didn't. Uh, that was one. Well, would your father even understood Giovanni's room, for example, and the, the implications? <laughs> you know, I, I have no idea. Actually, now that you say it, I wish I had <laughs> shown it to him because I would have loved to see his uh, uh, opinion. Um, in his um, um, memoirs, he talks about uh, molestation of children. And uh, he talks about how um, 
poverty and prejudice uh, bring that about. But he has not talked about um, uh, being gay. I, I like to think that uh, he would be very open because he was surprisingly open for his age, I mean. Uh, so I would like to think that he would be walking down the streets with James Baldwin and uh, having a whale of a time. In that letter, you tie Baldwin's work to the 2020 murder of George Floyd by the Minneapolis police. In what ways should we think about Baldwin and his writing in relation to the state of race relations in this country today and the debate over critical race theory? Well, you know, uh, one thing that he keeps going back to is what he calls the evil within and the evil without. And he talks about the man who hates. Um, uh, hatred will hurt him most. Uh, that was what makes Baldwin so generous-minded. Because on one hand, uh, he's uh, dedicated to the civil rights movement, and he has been a victim of racism in, uh, in this country. On the other hand, he refuses to become like his enemy. Uh, the enemy uh, puts all his power into hatred and Baldwin puts all his power into love. And um, uh, he talks about uh, race as being a construct that it does not, um, it is a construct that is there in order to control, in order to, uh, to control power uh, of one segment of society over the other. And uh, I think that right now that we see so much hate, we really need to reread Baldwin within this perspective. And I learned a few things from the war in Ukraine. Uh, again, about treating your enemy. Uh, Putin uh, kills children and innocent civilians uh, without paying any attention uh, to those lives that he's taking. And then denies what, that it's happened. Yeah, it, and then denies it. That he kills them twice, hmm. in fact, by denying them. But um, what do, do Ukrainians do? they call on Russian mothers to come and collect their captured sons. That is a really good lesson for us to, at the height of being violated in every way possible, the Ukrainians have this generosity of spirit uh, to treat um, the Russian soldiers as one of them. My guest on today's show is Azar Nafizi, whose latest book is Read Dangerously, The Subversive Power of Literature in Troubled Times, published by Day Street Books. This is the Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. You wrote an, an opinion piece recently in the Washington Post that regarded the banning of books and what it says about the places where it occurs. Um, and you tell a poignant story about a student of yours when you were teaching literature in Iran. Oh, yes, um, Razier. Uh, I 
want her to be, I'll, well, I'll, I'll tell, shall I tell the story? Of course. Okay. That's um, why I asked well, you about it. <laughs> yes, you did. Um, when I was teaching um, at the first year that I went back to Iran, I was teaching at this girl's uh, college and uh, uh, I was teaching American fiction and this girl, Razier, uh, was my student and she was um, from a, her mother was a washerwoman, a cleaning lady, and her father was dead. They were poor and they were very religious. But somehow, Razier connected to Henry James. Hmm. Uh, she loved especially two of his novels, um, uh, Washington Square and uh, its protagonist, uh, Catherine Sloper and Daisy Miller. Uh, she loved the fact that these women were so independent and they had such dignity and integrity that they would not um, give in uh, to, uh, that they would sacrifice their happiness, but do the right thing. And one day she told me that um, uh, she, she said, I think I'm in love. She meant that she was in love with uh, Henry James. Anyway, I left that university and only met her once in the street, but she gave me a sign not to talk to her. At that time, they were arresting a lot of people uh, who belonged to these political organizations, and she belonged to a Muslim opposition group. Uh, anyway, uh, after a few years, uh, one of my other students came to see me and she told me that she, she after the Cultural Revolution, which led to um, closing down the universities, uh, she was arrested and she was in the same cell as my student Razier. She told me, we read, uh, we talked about your book, your classes, and Razia told me about Henry James. I told her about Great Gatsby and the Gatsby's trial in your class. And then she paused and said, you know, Razia was executed. Hmm. Well, I didn't know Razia was executed. And I repeat her story because I don't want her to be forgotten. Um, Henry James did not save Razier from death, but he gave her meaning and sense. He gave meaning and sense to her life. He made her live a little better, that even at death's door, he remembered, he went to her death remembering Catherine Sloper and Daisy Miller. And um, I wanted to say that one function of literature is that it um, is the guardian of memory. We all die. And the conclusive evidence that we have lived is through these moments that we re record in our, through our imagination and through our ideas. I mentioned that uh, that article also dealt with the band. Uh, banning of books and what it says about places where it occurs. And it's different in different places. For example, Mouse, which you don't write about. Um, but uh, Mouse is banned in certain places, or Huckleberry yeah. Finn, but not in New York State, for example. Yes, uh, it just depends upon the kind of people who are... Uh 
living in in those places uh, i guess uh, it is really uh, obscene to think that a naked mouse my mouse uh, is obscene mm. and vulgar uh, the obscenity is in the eye of the beholder. Yeah, but that really uh, had more to do with uh, the fact that it was about uh, anti-Semitism in the same way that other uh, examples that you give are about race or, or sexism. So uh, I guess uh, it's, a, it's usually about either, it's about often about the people in power not wanting to hear the stories of the people who are out of power. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It is about that. Uh, censorship is a way of control. And uh, it is controlling those who think or uh, feel differently uh, from you. Because uh, fiction helps to humanize the other. Yeah. Fiction is always about the other. Uh, and it humanizes the other and it connects to the other. Uh, that is why it is universal. Uh, that is why, um, you know, I disagree with people saying that, uh, for example, if you are um, not uh, American, you cannot write about Americans mm -hmm. or vice versa. If you're American, you cannot write about Iranians. Literature is a writing and reading about others. That is how we experience the world. And that is how we empathize. I mean, my God, without empathy, how are we going to live? We'll be at one another's throats all the time. So empathy is very important and curiosity about others. Coming out of yourself and joining someone you don't know. That is curiosity. And curiosity and empathy are the two bases of um, imaginative knowledge. We have just a few minutes left, but I wanted to address something else. And you include an appendix in your book titled My Father's Letter to Lyndon B. Johnson. And it's the full text of the letter your father wrote to President Johnson when he was jailed. Why have you included it in the book? Well, not, I not first of all, I, I was writing letters to him, and I thought that maybe the readers would like to experience one of his letters. Uh, and uh, uh, since he was uh, quite mesmerized by America, partly because he studied here, and uh, he was always uh, concerned about this big contradiction at the heart of America. On one hand, prosperity, freedom, freedom of speech, and on the other hand, po extreme poverty and racism. Uh, and uh, in this uh, letter, he addresses them. So and now I think that I wish I had written, well, I keep thinking of James Baldwin, never mind. <laughs> well, just one other thing. You say Putin is driven by fear. In, in what way? Uh, Putin is what? Driven by fear. Oh, yes. Well, you know, when you have no language other than elimination and extermination, it means that you're afraid. If you are not afraid of other people, you don't need to kill them, to destroy them, to oppose them. You use your power of speech and your power, you believe that your ideas um, are uh, sound enough and you're confident enough uh, to stand up to them. 
whenever I see that kind of extreme violence, I, I think that there is a weak person behind it. Any final words before uh, we end this conversation? Well, uh, at the, the conclusion of my book, I say readers of the world unite. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I think this is the time for readers and writers to unite and to go on the offensive. And uh, how are we going to do that? <laughs> but I mean, <laughs> well, for, example, if I live I mean in, for example, if I live in Texas and they ban a book about the Alamo, which they have done. Uh, oh, my God. Uh, how do I fight that? Do I just simply move to another state or do I do what uh, people who are, are affected by anti-abortion laws do, go uh, to the, another state to get what I need and then come back home? Well, I think that, uh, first of all, we are doing it. I mean, you are doing it through your program, uh, reaching out to people. And uh, I think that we need to um, have these subversive book groups, especially in schools and, uh, and the educational institutions, and read the banned books and talk about them. Well, we need to write and talk and talk and talk and turn the universities into a space for discourse and dialogue. And that's what uh, Azir, Azar Nafizi does in her new book, Read Dangerously, The Subversive Power of Literature in Troubled Times, published by uh, Day Street Books. Uh, what a great pleasure it's been having you on our show. Thank you it, so much. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of our show. My great thanks to Todd McGovern for his help in preparing today's interview. And also to my audio engineer, Reggie Johnson, and to Keziah Glow, the executive producer of London Lopez at Large, for all of the important work that they do throughout the week. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 600, I think it's we're now close to 700 past shows, streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which recently surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else that you can get a podcast. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off, uh, I, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We are asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or Give, and then the number two, WBAI.org. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique, in-depth content, information you just don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopez at Large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Read Dangerously, The Subversive Power of Literature in Troubled Times by Azar Nafisi. So why not make that call right now to 212 209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. You might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. And during this Women's History Month, we are offering the 8-gigabyte Women's History Collection and a WBAI tote bag to everyone 
who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $15 a month or more. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because WBAI relies 100% on listener donations. Um, We are off on Monday, but I hope you can join us on Tuesday when my guest will be Buddy Levy discussing his new book, River of Darkness. We'll see you then. Have a great weekend.